Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I am so excited now to introduce our, our guest today. Grover Norquist is a friend. I don't know how when I first met him, but he's one of the movers, shakers of Washington, D.C. He has Wednesday meetings that uh, people come to and, and help shape uh, American life and American thinking in profound ways. He's one of the brightest minds I've ever been around and is always a, always an encourager. Grover, we're really delighted to have you on. And uh, just take the first few minutes, if you would, and just give a little bit of your background so people know you a little bit better, maybe institutions you've attended or how you launched into what you're now doing. And then I'm going to throw it wide open, taxes. Everybody cares about taxes. You are the primo expert on that topic, and we seem to have a calamity in America right now. I don't know any better way to describe it. So Grover Norquist, thank you to the World Prayer Network. We turn it to you. Jim, thank you very, very much. Uh, Well, before I emigrated to the United States, um, I grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, I went to high school there, went to Harvard, Harvard Business School, then came down to Washington with the Reagan uh, Revolution. Uh, I uh, was executive director of the National Taxpayers Union, at the time the only national uh, taxpayer group in the country. Uh, and then later, Reagan, President Reagan uh, was getting ready to do the Tax Reform Act of 1986, uh, and he asked if I would run the outside political group that would campaign to support the measure. Uh, and that was uh, uh, Americans for Tax Reform. Uh, I became the president of that, and we worked to help pass what Reagan reduced marginal tax rates from on businesses from 50% down to 34, uh, and on individuals from many rates at a top one of 50 down to two rates, 15 and 28. So that was a very good tax reform. In doing that, I set up the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, got 100 congressmen and 20 senators and one president, Reagan, to sign a pledge to the American people that they would never vote for and that Reagan would veto any measure that was a net tax increase or that raised tax rates. Uh, And as a result, the Tax Reform Act was not a hidden tax increase, whatever plans other people had. It was in fact a small tax cut, but mostly tax reform. And then since then, I've been asking all candidates for the House and Senate, and now for governors and state legislators and increasingly school boards and city councils to sign the pledge publicly saying, I will not raise your taxes. There are a lot of secret promises that people make to special interests. You know, I'll get you this, I'll get you that. The Taxpayer Protection Pledge is in writing. It's about one sentence. I will vote against, veto any net tax increase. You want to reform taxes, fine, but not raise them. Uh, And uh, we have, uh, since 1994, when uh, we got a majority of the House and the Senate committed to taking the pledge, since then, Uh, The only time you've ever had a tax increase is when the Democrats have the House, Senate, and the presidency. As long as the Republicans, almost all of whom have taken the pledge, are in the House and the Senate, no tax increase. So there have been tax increase under Clinton two years. He lost the House and Senate. Then six years of no tax increase. Tax increase first two years of Obama. Then he lost the House and most of the Senate. No tax increases last six years. And now Biden, tax increase in the first two years probably no tax increases are spending in the next two or six. Um, So the Taxpayer Protection Pledge is around which um, 
is the centerpiece of what we do. But at Americans for Tax Reform, I chair a meeting every Wednesday, you've attended, um, where we bring out about 120 center-right activists, uh, people, everybody in the room is there because on their vote-moving issue, they wish to be left alone, whether it's freedom of religion or the Second Amendment or your small business uh, or um, your, your right to uh, work in the gig economy as an independent contractor, go to private school, homeschool your children, parental rights. Everybody who wants the government to just leave them alone in the most important part of their life. Let me practice my faith and transmit it to their kids. Just back off. We're not asking for Baptist stamps. Uh, we're not asking for the government to go tell everybody to buy, go hunting or something. Just leave us alone. We'll decide how we organize our life. Um, and that coalition is replicated in 45 different states and now 26 countries. So it helps get all of the center-right freedom movement people talking to each other because the guy who goes to church all day and the guy who makes money all day and the guy who fondles his gun all day don't always talk about what they're doing. This gives them a chance to talk about, you know, what they're doing and what what their freedoms mean to them and to vote for candidates who will leave them alone to educate their children, for parents to have control over their children, for freedom of religion, for lower taxes, for less spending, for less government control of your business. And that means we have a very low maintenance coalition fighting for letting people run their own lives. That is uh, th th the phrase that jumped off the page of me. We were a group of people who wish to be left alone. We want to vote for candidates who will leave us alone. Uh, I won't go into the scriptural foundations of what you discovered now, but I, I wrote a book called Well-Versed, which lays out the biblical underpinnings, the 30 different topics. And one of those, we dealt with the taxation. What does the scripture say about taxation? But the scripture that comes to my mind right now is the aspect of when Pharaoh was uh, trying to break the backs of the Israelites, uh, what he finally said to him, not only are you going to make the bricks, we're going to have you gather the straw that makes the bricks, the reinforcement, the rebar. We're going to make it harder on you. We're, we're going to make it more difficult for you. And that's what I see happening right now. If, if you, You've done the analysis on a typical family with a mom and dad and three kids, we'll say, what is happening to them in the level of taxation, all the taxes. I live in California, and, and you, you're practically taxed if you're going to breathe air now, and it's out of control. So just talk to us now, if you would, just from a standpoint nationally, what is happening on taxes? We're all very aware of 87,000 new IRS agents. And, of course, the meme went everywhere where they advertised need to be able to carry a gun for lethal force and be willing to use it. And the IRS immediately pulled that down, I'm told. Uh, but it was there. I thought somebody. I, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought somebody made it up, and so I didn't believe it the first couple times I saw it. And I realized it's on that site. It's for real. So talk to us about the taxation schedule right now, because I think, uh, from my perspective, this is a biblical, scriptural, theological issue to me. It's a moral and ethical issue of what the government is doing to the people. Uh, so talk to us about the state of taxation right now in America. Now, what's happening? Uh, are at some point touch on national debt and then these 87,000 agents everybody's that's on the mind of everyone right now what does that mean for America um, the tax issue is the most important issue in American history throughout our history as we've created a country and a constitution we started with it as a tax revolt against British uh, taxation uh, and then throughout our history the question of how much of your life is yours and how much of it belongs to the government is the central question that people are have to answer 
again and again and again. Uh, and today, um, the, the two parties are separated on the tax issue more than any other issue around. Um, and right now, there isn't a Republican in Washington who won't cut taxes, and there isn't a Democrat in Washington who won't raise them. The tax increase we saw um, really does define the two parties. Every single Democrat, the moderates, uh, Manchin, uh, Biden, who used to be a moderate Democrat at one point, 2,700 years ago, um, all of them, every Democrat voted for the tax increase, a dramatic 700 plus billion dollar tax increase, uh, and every single Republican voted against it. So the country, which was once divided north-south, you were in the north, you were Republican, if you're in the south, you were a Democrat, is now divided on the tax issue and how much of your life is yours, how much of it is going to be taken by the government, how much of your time, money is time, money... When you earn money, you have to be away from your family uh, and other things that you would do. When the government takes some of that, it's expensive. So the fight right now was, uh, do we want to have lower taxes or higher taxes? And the, what the White House pushed for uh, is a series of tax increases on coal, on gasoline, uh, crude oil, on natural gas, the production of natural gas. Everybody's taxes are going to go up. So there isn't anyone in the country that is not hit and punished and damaged by this tax increase. Now, sometimes politicians like to say, I'm not taxing you, I'm taxing a business, a corporation. Well, where do corporations get their money? They sell you things, okay? And that's where they get their money. So if the government's gonna raise taxes on General Motors, the cost of General Motors cars will go up and we will pay for it in higher consumer prices. Or wages will be depressed because the, government, the, the, the business doesn't have the money to pay more. And so it's paid for by workers earning less money. When we cut the corporate income tax, uh, President Trump and the Republicans passed a bill to take the corporate rate, which was 35%, which, by the way, was higher than communist China. Americans were taxing their business at 35%. China at 25 and their competitive industries at 15. We were at 35 plus state corporate income taxes. Okay. Stupider than France. We were higher than stupider than France on tax policy is not where you want to be. If you want to compete in the world, why would you have higher taxes than China? We should compete on having the lowest taxes and the least expensive regulations and the least expensive government, not the least lowest wages. You don't want to compete on lower wages. You want to compete on other costs. We want low costs of energy, low cost of government, taxes and regulation. You want high wages, low cost of government, low cost of energy. And of course, the Biden administration is pushing for exactly the opposite position. Raise the cost of energy, raise the cost of government, raise the cost of taxes, reduce wages. When the Republicans cut the income tax, corporate income tax from 35 to 21, Two years later, the median income, not the richest, not the poorest, but the dead center median income family of four saw their income, annual income, increase by $4,400, 6.8%. That is a bigger increase in wages in one year than President Obama had in the previous eight years total, okay? Cutting the corporate rate raises wages. Raising the corporate rate lowers wages. So when politicians like business taxes or the corporate tax, what they like about it is it's hidden who pays it. 
They go, oh, oh, you're not going to pay it. They'll pay it. Mr. Mr. General Motors will pay it. There is no Mr. General Motors. General Motors has customers that pay it. They have uh, workers that pay it in lower wages. And of course, if the value of stocks goes down in the United States, the value of companies, well, Biden is so old that he remembers when only five or 10% of Americans own shares of stock. Today, it's more than 58% of Americans have a 401k or an IRA or a pension that's based on the value of stock. So when the stock market goes up, when companies are worth less, your life savings goes up. That's what happened during the Trump years. When Biden was elected, the, the value of the, what's in your 401k, your IRA, your 403b, all the various pension structures um, and, and life, so that your life savings are in the stock market, um, under Biden, they went down. People are poorer today than when Biden was elected because by, because of his policies. Your income is worth less because of inflation. Inflation in the last 12 months was up over 8%. Wage increases under 5.5%. 5.5 is a smaller number than eight, which means the value of your paycheck went down. Now you may, oh, it, I, look, I, it, I have more dollars, but the dollars are worth less. The dollar in your pocket, you got a $20 bill in your pocket, it's not worth $20 if you've had it there for a year. It's worth about 18 now. Uh, and every year that inflation goes on, that continues and it makes people poorer. So taxing businesses are actually taxes on individuals. And the, the other challenge, of course, is that those who are arguing for higher taxes really play to hate and envy as the two motivations. You should be happy we're going to tax them. We're going to punish them. Other people will be pun will be hurt because of our taxes, and you should be pleased. Biden revels in the idea that some people will be damaged. Now, of course, not just wealthy people who are damaged when you make someone's 401k less. It's not just rich people who are damaged by inflation. It's every single America. Price of energy goes up as it did uh, as a result of taxes and regulations under Biden. And what happens? Every single American is damaged by it. And Biden thinks he's promoting envy as a political program instead of a deadly sin. Um, so the good news is this is America, not Bulgaria in 1956. So envy is, has some attraction, but not as much as it has in other countries over time. Um, Argentina used to be the richest country in the hemisphere. Now it's not because envy um, and because government was going to fix and make everybody equal uh, as you move forward. So um, you talked about the IRS. Um, the other way they're going to raise resources that Biden and the Democrats, every single Democrat voted to increase the pay, the amount of money that's thrown into the IRS by $80 billion. That's billion with a B, 80 billion to hire 87,000 IRS agents. Okay. That is twice the size of the British Navy, 87,000. It is more people than serve on all of America's aircraft carriers across the country. Uh, it fills all but a handful of the uh, football stadiums in American universities. It is a big number, it, it, two Roman Colosseums, if you're in the, in the classical Rome. Uh, it is very large, and these are people that are going to go in and audit folks. And we now know from the government's own numbers that they expect to get $20 billion from people who make less than, remember Biden said he was only going to tax the rich. 
20 billion is coming at, at least, the, the wording is at least 20 billion is coming from middle income people, not the rich, by more audits. In point of fact, if you listen to the left's studies they show, they believe that the people who aren't paying enough in taxes um, are restaurants, people who get uh, tips, uh, small businesses, self-employed people, the gig economy, um, uh, independent contractors. None of those people are rich. Those are all the targets that they've got forward. Uh, and as you pointed out, they were running ads about you got to be willing to use deadly force if they want to come for the IRS. Uh, the IRS has five million rounds of ammunition. Why? They have 4,600 guns. They have machine guns, uh, fully automatic weapons. They have shotguns. They've got pistols. They've got revolvers. Uh, no hand grenades that they're willing to admit to. Um, what in the world are they planning to do with this? We know a little bit because in the 90s, under the abuses during the Clinton years, there were hearings. And at Americans for Tax Fraud, we've put up on our website, ATR, some of the, the interviews or the, the people who testified about they're in their business and these guys with guns start coming in and throw, pointing guns at all their uh, employees and so on. Um, and the inspectors general who looked at the IRS point out that the number of times the guns have been fired, the IRS guns, more than half the time it's by mistake. They're shooting themselves in the foot. They do say there've been problems with you know accidental firings but it's all redacted. So they won't tell you who got shot in the foot and what plate glass windows are no longer standing because of their you know, um, shoot them up position. Uh, but this is very scary because the IRS can destroy your business simply by auditing it. You have time to take hours and hours away from your restaurant to fill out, you know, to, to go look for paperwork. Um, they don't have to find anything wrong. They just have to come and harass you for, in some cases from the hearings, years. They just sit around and buy. There's no way to make them go away. They don't have to say, I'm sorry, when they leave. They may find nothing wrong um, and yet tell you, you know, unless you give us 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something, we're going to stick and bother you. So people, okay. And then they are, see, we found them. You know, uh, there's some real challenges with the way the IRS has behaved. A hundred percent of the money that the IRS pack, the, the, the union structure in the IRS has is 100% that gives, it goes to parties, goes to the Democratic Party, 100% to the Democratic Party, 98% to Democratic candidates. We have a politicized IRS. I served on the commission on restructuring the IRS back in the 90s. It, they had the hearings, there were outrages. I, I and others were on a committee and I asked the head of the IRS. I said, I'm talking to Heritage and the National Rifle Association, other conservative groups. They're being audited. I talked to my left-wing friends. None of them are being audited. Why are you doing partisan auditing? Oh, he said, we have this algorithm and it's it's fair and it's even. I said, that's delightful. Let's see it. Oh, it's a secret. You'll have to trust us. We know that they took the people who are trying to incorporate in the nonprofit during the Tea Party movement and sent them all to Ohio and only one conservative group got its nonprofit status to incorporate from the IRS, which you need to do to function. You need to have that. In three years, one, there were hundreds, thousands of Tea Party groups around the country. They were smothered by the IRS refusal to let them incorporate in a nonprofit status. The IRS destroyed a political movement on purpose with the head of the IRS visiting the White House 
more often than any other head of the, which the head of the IRS ever have to go to the White House for, regularly scheduled meetings at the White House. They took conservative groups, sent them to some group, some area in Ohio where they sat around at a table and didn't approve them. So there is a history of the IRS going after its political enemies, uh, which tend to be conservatives. They have over time gone after uh, religious leaders that they don't like or who say things that they disapprove of or people who disagreed with Lyndon Johnson, ministers, radio talk, Christian uh, ministries on the radio, television, targeted by the IRS and by the FCC, and in some cases destroyed. So this is not a joke. This, you know, they're talking about getting guns and so on is frightening, but the IRS is more likely to violate your civil rights than the FBI. This is chilling. Is there any court restraints that we have? When you say 5 million rounds of ammunition, that, that's that's an army. Uh, 46,000 guns and you listed other things. Uh, 4,600, 4,600 guns. Oh, so okay. they got a lot of weapons. They're going to have to buy some more guns they, with all that ammo they got. <laughs> okay, 4,600. Uh, that sounds pretty jolly. Any yeah. court restraints that we can count on to protect us as citizens? Um, the courts have been very leery of interfering with the government's ability to take money because it's so central to the government functioning. So they have really allowed the IRS to run riot. Uh, the inspectors general at the IRS found that when they were going after people, maybe 20% of the time they read them their rights. You know, if a police chief did that or, uh, or the FBI did, they, they'd be out on their fanny right away. The IRS does this, nobody complains, nobody talks to them, nobody fires them. They've been told again and again, we don't care how you treat people. And by the way, all the way you've been, everything you've been doing when people would contribute to um, uh, traditional marriage initiatives like California, the IRS would leak who the donors were so that people could go harass them, okay? Completely illegal, nobody fired, nobody punished. Uh, the head of the IRS got a bonus. Um, they're gonna get $80 billion more. What's the message? Keep going, kids, keep going. The, um, just so I can bring my listeners up to speed here, what we're talking about here. Uh, the scriptures are very clear that the role of government is to restrain evil. The goal of government is to protect its citizenry, to protect its citizenry. That's why God established government. That's why God, in Romans chapter 13, uses the word, Paul used the word, diakonos, which means servant or minister of God. The government is supposed to be a servant of God to the people. That's its actual calling in, in, in scripture. And when government functions properly, guess what happens? Peace, tranquility, and prosperity. If the government functions uh, properly. In my book, Well-Versed, you can go to wellversedworld.org and pick up a copy if you want to. And we I sell it at my cost. I don't want to sell you with a profit. I'm not a very good capitalist at that point. That book, we make it available to you. If you'll buy it in bulk, we sell it at our cost. Get it out to everybody. We have a whole section on taxes. What does the scripture say about, about taxes? But remember the goal of government. The purpose of government is not to tax the people. The purpose of government is to protect the citizenry. Now, they are to restrain the evildoer which is not happening in places like New York City. And Grover talked on, on minimum wage. Uh, the issue, I mean, he talked on the issue of wages. The issue of a, a servant is, is worthy, a laborer is worthy of its hire. There's a chapter in there on the nature of minimum wage, talking about what does the scripture say about that, that type of a topic? What we have here is, to me, Grover, I, 
I know you're in a town that is distinctly partisan. To my heart, uh, mine is <laughs> evil for versus good, and, and, and there are wrongdoers, and this is wrong. I, I think, let's go back to the national debt, if we can take a new topic for a moment. When Obama was running for office, speaking of George W. Bush before him, he called George Bush's running up of the national debt, uh, he called it unpatriotic, I'm not sure if he used the word immoral or obscene, or he, he used one other word, it was pretty strong, very strong language. And then he got into office and he doubled the national debt. If I'm not mistaken, it went from I may be off my numbers five million to five trillion to ten trillion under Obama. I'm I, am I close on those Something numbers? Something like that, yeah. It continued up uh, under Trump as well, and then under Biden, we have just mushroomed, and nobody seems to be talking about the day will come when all we can do is service interest. We have no money for anything else. Talk to us about the national debt. Give us a handle on where we're at, and and, and what can be done. Yeah. Uh, the national debt's almost the size of the economy, um, and that's expensive. And if interest rates rise, it becomes even more expensive. We've had low interest rates up until this inflationary period, and that sort of made it cheap money. And so we could borrow and borrow, and it wasn't that expensive. But when interest rates rise, it's going to become a larger and larger part of the budget. Um, it is not sustainable. The liberals like to talk about sustainability. The spending they're doing, the deficits are not sustainable. Uh, one of the challenges is uh, everyone talks about the deficit, but they mean two different things. I talk about the deficit. I think the government's spending too much money. It should spend less. Um, I debated this morning on CNBC with a guy who was saying, oh, we have a deficit. We should raise taxes. Um, so there are two competing factors. I would like less spending. The other team would like more spending. They want higher taxes, more spending. I want lower taxes, less spending. And when we talk about the deficit, it can sometimes confuse voters because somebody wants to raise taxes. Sounds like they want to reduce the deficit, which sounds good. But what they want to do is raise taxes and spend every penny of it. Um, and that, of course, was what Clinton did. Clinton raised taxes, planned to spend every penny of it, lost the House and Senate, and uh, they took away his ability to spend. That's how we ended up balancing the budget because Clinton couldn't spend the way he planned to. Uh, and that's what brought us briefly into balance. So we need to rein in spending, keep taxes low so we have growth, rein in spending. You wanna reduce spending as a percentage of the economy. You want the government to be a smaller percentage of your paycheck than it is today. But there's nobody talking about the word deficit means you're spending more in a year than you are bringing in. But the word debt is your cumulative over the years. And uh, there was a time when in presidential debates, there was actually a time where it was debated about the debt being too high. Yeah, I think you'd have to go clear back to the Carter era uh, to find those debates. But no, I, virtually no candidate today is bringing up the fact this debt is going to strangle not we used to say our grandkids. Well, now it's our kids. It's coming, coming quick. Is there yeah. anyone concerned about really concerned about the debt in in high enough levels to make a difference? Um, there are, and we tend to focus on Washington D.C. because it's so big and so expensive. But the fifty states tell us a lot about what uh, what possibilities there are for stupid and what possibilities there are for real progress. There are fifty states and. 30 states have a Republican 
House and Senate, uh, and 20 states are basically run by Democrats. And you've got within those very different approaches. Uh, we now have eight states with no personal income tax, and they have balanced budgets, no personal income tax. New York has 22, 20 million people, Florida, 22 million. So they're about the same size. But New York state has $200 billion spending for the state and Florida, 100. So Florida, the cost of government in Florida is half per person what it is in New York. They have roads in Florida. They have schools in Florida. What they don't have is as many government employees making as much money and with the ridiculous pensions. That's what New York is paying for with their big government. Too many government workers getting paid too much with huge pensions um, that kick in early in life. And in Florida, people have more regularly paid work and pensions that are somewhat in keeping with the private sector and government costs half as much. Every big state could look like Florida and, and cut in half their costs. There are another 10 states now that are looking to phase their income tax to zero. Uh, and four of them have recently gone, five now, have gone to a single rate tax, and then they're going to zero. I really like a single rate tax uh, because, again, in Massachusetts, they had a single rate tax, still to this day have one, and it's only 5%. Now, New York has 10, New Jersey, Minnesota, California, 10 plus. Why? Because they have a graduate income tax and politicians can mug the populace one at a time. You know, it's not you. We're just going to tax these people. You might want to step out of the room. It's not going to be pleasant, but, you know, it's not you. So you shouldn't care what happens to them. We're going to tax them. Then when they're done with one group, they turn to another group and say, now it's your turn to pay higher taxes. And that's how taxes get so high. But if you have to raise taxes on everybody at once, then we're all listening to this great idea you have. And the answer is often no. So single rate tax states have lower taxes. That's why the effort to go to a single rate tax in Washington is so important. That will keep taxes down, which reduces spending and gets us on a path to begin to pay down the debt. Single rate tax, I think everybody knows what that is, but just make sure, define that. Flat tax, everybody pays in Massachusetts, everyone pays 5%. Uh, in Pennsylvania, it's a 3% flat tax. In, uh, uh, in Florida, it's a 0% flat tax, but it's flat. It's, there's, everybody's treated the same. In California, they divide you into different groups, and some people are paying 13.5%, and some people have to pay nothing. Um, and so voters and the citizens are divided against each other by the politicians, and the politicians take everybody's money. So a single rate, one rate, everybody pays one rate, um, really makes it easier for people to feel comfortable. I know what I'm paying and I know what he's, you know, if somebody makes twice as much money, they'll pay twice as much. I'm not worried that something unfair is happening. You divide it into four, six, 10 different divisions in terms of different rates. Very confusing to people about who pays what. Ben Carson, I look through, of course, theological lens. Ben Carson used to say, uh, the government should not get cumulatively more than what God gets. God gets 10%. Uh, and I think to a scripture from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal against future generations, from future generations, is what's being violated. Why is it that, Grover, that we can't ever seem to address, people have lost confidence in their government. They've lost confidence in the primary institutions. They've lost confidence in the FBI. They're losing confidence in the fundamental institutions of our culture. Why can we never address the issue of waste, fraud, and abuse? 
why both parties talk about it it never it never gets addressed well among other reasons they disagree what constitutes waste fraud and abuse um for a lot of the liberals um spending that locks people into welfare dependency is a good idea it damages them but it makes them dependent on the government and they remember to vote properly and be properly deferential and, and the liberals like that. They like policies that make people dependent. They don't like self-employed people. Self-employed people never say thank you to the government because they don't think the government helped them. They think they woke up in the morning and went to work and worked and worked and worked and what they've accomplished, they know that they did it. Uh, the po political politicians on the left much prefer people who come and say thank you all the time, like the guys that come in and nod their head towards the godfather. You know, um, And what... What we want in America is a free country where everybody looks in the mirror and says, I'm the master of my own fate here. I'm going to take care of my children and nobody's going to get in my way and the government's not going to get in my way. And for many years, that was true. But today, the biggest obstacle to people taking care of their families is the government's rules and the government's taxes. You may have answered this, but I think I interrupted you before you got a chance to answer it. I'm going back in our conversation. We talked about guns and ammunition. And I said, what court restraint do we have on the IRS that can protect us? I think I interrupted you in the and in, in, in starting to answer that. Do we have much precedence for court restraint that can put a stop on abuses by the IRS? Right now, no. But it is possible to pass laws. And I think what will happen if we have a change in Congress and you have a more friendly to taxpayer Congress, they'll say, we're not doing a budget, Mr. President, and we're certainly not going to vote any money for IRS hiring more people until these six abuses are banned and fixed. And where, for instance, we know that the IRS leaked 15,000 or so um, different tax returns and audits over a 10-year period for many, many Americans to embarrass them and, and, you, and, and basically to steal their privacy. Nobody's been fired. Nobody's been fired. Nobody's been fired. I don't think if the IRS can't sh show that they know when somebody's looking at everybody's IRA, that's material, and illegally sharing it. It's a five-year go-to-jail illegal thing that they did. Um, if that's not prosecuted, if those people aren't fired, if that's not made impossible to happen again, I don't think they should get another penny. No new people until you can manage the people you have. I was being interviewed by a lady not too long ago, and I found out she's the one. I didn't know who it was. I heard the story. She's the one when she was applying to the IRS for uh, tax exemption, and it was it was she had the word biblical principles or something, and they actually came back and said, "You know the story. No biblical principles are too close to the Republican Party." <laughs> she went on Fox, and within seven days, they phoned her and changed it. Yeah. How, how how abusive uh, this this has become. Uh, yeah. Let me ask the question: If 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 Grover could be dictator for the day, well, for longer than that, and you could change the tax code exactly to what it ought to be in America, and address the deficit and the debt, mm -hmm. uh, so you are in charge. You are president, your House and your Senate. What would you do? Okay. For starters, if I was made dictator, I'd resign. But if I was asked what I hope the House and Senate and the president would do through the Constitution, uh, it is to move to a single rate tax, a flat rate tax at the national level 
in addition to all 50 states. Uh, and the good news is in 15 years, half of the states will be at the flat rate tax and will be close to half at zero um, because the movement is very strong there. But for spending, the way to deal with that is to take the major entitlement programs, the welfare programs, the programs where you get money from the government, not because you did anything, but because you showed up and said, send me money, I'm poor. Um, this is not Social Security, it's not Medicare, the two things that people pay into, but those, but the welfare programs, the means-tested programs, those should be block granted to the 50 states. How much did we give you for these welfare programs last year, Indiana? Three billion, 10 billion, 10 billion? Here's your 10 billion. That will increase no faster than inflation. And you have no rules. We're not gonna have federal rules telling you what to do. You decide how to deal with it. And you know what? You have to get reelected every year. So you'd better do it in a way that makes sense to Indiana, not to some bureaucrat in Washington, DC. 50 states will do 50 different things, just like we did. This is exactly what we did with welfare, aid to families with dependent children. We block granted out to the states. States save 30, 40% because they would root out uh, uh, corruption. They would root out fraud because now it's their money and they care if it's stolen. If the federal money, they don't care if it gets stolen, the more the merrier. Um, we need competition in governments and between governments. So I want to see, just as we do on taxes, I want to see California and Arizona each manage their own welfare system and see which way people walk. Where do people go to and leave? Um, if you do that, Paul Ryan had a proposal to do that. It dramatically reduces spending over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It pays down the national debt over time because you can just see the, the lines curve down. And you're, the, as long as you have reasonable economic growth, you actually can pay down the debt and get it behind you. But you have to give states the right to compete with each other, to get rid of all the one size fits all rules. You know, the idea that everybody in the United States should do the same thing the same way and have the same structures to help poor people. You know, can you imagine if you have six people and trying to decide how to where to go to dinner, it's hard to agree. How could you possibly have 300 million people and agrees to what works somewhere? At least get 50 different states trying it different ways and find out what works best. Um, that that would take us to pay off the debt and a single rate tax would give us the most growth and the faster you grow, the faster you pay down the debt and the government becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the economy. This is completely doable. Um, and we were within one vote of getting a long way there when Trump had the measure to abolish Obamacare and to block grant Medicaid to the states. And that would have saved a lot of the spending on welfare because states could compete to do it more effectively. I was interviewing a gentleman. He said, Jim, how many governmental agencies do you think you are? I thought he was talking about like Department of Education, Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture. I said, I believe there's around 15 or so. I can't remember. He said, that's what most people think. There are 627. I mean, it was it was staggering. So am I being too extreme when I say this? Is this just being hyperbole or melodrama if I say if we were to get rid of most agencies, number one, number two, take the standard big, huge agencies that employ such enormous numbers of people and reduce them by two thirds to 75 percent, the three fourths, we actually we could do that and still be effective as a as a functioning government. Is that an overstatement on my part? No, you just think back. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we had fewer of all those things. 
and the government worked okay and maybe even better than it does today. So as you got layers and layers of more spending and more bureaucracy, it hasn't improved the quality of the government or the competency of the government. It's made it worse. If you ask any one person to do 20 things, they can't do it very well. If you ask the government to do 2000 things, it sure can't do them very well because I mean, governments can blow things up, but, but I mean, but governments don't have expertise. Uh, the private sector does, people do. They, when people make their own decisions, when families make their own decisions, when communities make their own decisions, when states make their own decisions, they make better decisions because it's easier to change your mind to find out something new. And you have examples. I didn't know Connecticut was doing it right. We could do it like that. One size fits all in Washington. There's no learning at all. I, I live in San Diego, but I grew up on the farms of Kansas. And I remember hearing uh, uh, sometime in my college years about someone who proposed that they wanted to pass a law that there could not be more employees in the Department of Agriculture than there were farmers in the U.S. And that got clobbered. That was not passed. It was regarded probably as a joke, I suppose. But the fact is, they didn't want that to pass. They didn't want to put that kind of a limitation uh, on it. Uh, as we close off here, uh, I, I got to tell you, Grover, I, I'm so I'm immensely grateful for you. I'm always, every time I'm around you, I marvel at your content. Your brain is one of the fastest brains. You're articulate. I'm not blowing smoke. I always enjoy you uh, so much that I really want more time. And your illustrations are so graphic. I'm telling you, if you were a preacher, you'd be a phenomenal preacher. <laughs> In fact, you are on, the, on this issue. What, what question should I have asked you? Is this the closeout? What questions should I have thought to ask you that I failed to ask you? Or what things do you want to say to people to encourage them? What can they do? What action can they take? How can they connect with you? What's your website? How can they get on your mailing list? Yeah. Um, our website is ATR, Americans for Tax Form, ATR.org. And we put out, you know, a lot of what's been on the press has been the list of tax increases in this bill that, that we put out in a readable form. Okay. Um, and so we try and make it easy for people to access information and back it up so that somebody feels confident telling somebody else this is the number because you can find the documentation for it. Um, and look in your state for the center-right meetings. If you're active in a political group, we'd love to have you participate there. It's broad center-right. Um, and uh, I tweet at Grover Norquist uh, and send out what I think is important or interesting uh, on the days. And I would suggest everyone needs to think about whether they might want to run for school board. If you're a parent, think about running for the school board. There are 88,000 elected members of school boards in the United States. They are generally for two-year terms. So over four years, 88,000 people are elected. This last couple of years, because of people have noticed with COVID, they're learning more about what the public schools are doing, some of the ridiculous books that they're handing out to kids and age and appropriate stuff. Um, teaching kids racism, which is unhelpful. Um, and parents are just appalled. And I would suggest two things. One, look to run for the school board. Um, there's no, there are no rules in a knife fight. You don't have to get a certificate to run. Um, you want to make sure that you're not just emoting, but you're doing some research. So you know what you're doing. Find somebody to run with. We are going to have thousands and thousands of newly elected school board members or people who then could run for state legislature or Congress or mayor. Um, we're gonna have thousands of serious parents, a lot of angry moms, very serious moms going, I 
am outraged to discover how the schools have been run, the monopolies, the schools have been run, and I want to get under the hood and fix it. The other part to that is, um, I think the best way to deal with schools that have ridiculous books in their libraries, not to ban the books, but say, if the books in the library or teaching kids racism in school offends you, here's all the money we were planning on spending for your kid in this school, you take it, go anywhere you want. So you don't have to put up with ridiculous racist stuff or age inappropriate material in books or handouts, uh, but you don't tell anyone else they can't do it. You want, hey, you want that? That's that's you, all yours. I'm taking the tax dollars that we're gonna spend on my child and homeschool. This is the, the law in Arizona they just passed. They take the state funding per school and they hand it to parents to homeschool or to go to a, a, a religious school um, and or secular school or science school, whatever what they want. Get you know, go to the school that you want. So the two big movements, the movement to control your own kids' education completely, and the movement to if, for those kids who aren't comfortable leaving the public school, mom needs to pay some attention and help get people elected who'll run it on behalf of students and parents, not the teachers union. Well, that, that's extremely important. I, my, my sensing is there's some people being called by the Lord to run for school board right now. I take seriously uh, that if you would. I think there's 511,000 elective offices across America. I've even heard as high as 550,000 by some, but yeah. at least 511,000 at least. Many. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. What would you say? Many. Yes. Many. And the point is I, there, there's a place for you to jump in. And right now it's critical to jump in. On your website, uh, America's for Tax Reform, it's atr.com. O-R-G. Oh, oh, or, or, okay. Or, okay. ATR.org. Okay. Everybody go to that ATR.org and you can check out some incredible things there. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. Father, I just pray blessing upon Grover. Thank you for the message he has. And, and I pray protection around him, supernatural protection around him, and the blessing of the Lord upon him in every arena of his life. And may this message, this message is so grounded in, in truth, actually the truth of your word. Lord, may this message get way beyond even where it has up to this point. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.